Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. And I'm the good doctor, Steve Marconi. Our show is a little different this week, isn't it, Steve? That's right. This show, taken from our Spring Music Management Seminar Series, features adjunct professor Steve Leeds. Listen hard because there's some great stuff here. Don't you agree, my co-host with the mo-host? Whatever you say. Be sure to go to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for our newsletter, read about current events and the music industry and learn more about our podcast. Yes, our podcast is available on Stitcher Radio. You can download Stitcher for free on your iOS or Android device. Stick around and listen to this insightful interview. Then come back next week at 8 p.m. for another great Music Biz 101 and More radio show. Free advice about the music industry every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Take it away, Steve Leeds! Good evening. How's everybody tonight? Tonight, we're very fortunate to have with us a, a very gifted author, journalist. Um, made a long journey here. He's uh, originally from the Midwest, although born in New England. Um, the word free has a lot of connotations. Um, you know, might mean something to each and one of you individually in a different way. Um, could be freedom to do things when you want. Um, could be getting things for free. It could be uh, escaping from something. Uh, <clears throat> but the word free happens to be in the title of tonight's book, How Music Got Free. The End of an Industry, The Turn of the Century, and The Patient Zero of Piracy. Our guest and author tonight is Stephen Witt. I'm sure many of you have read the book. It's been around for what almost a year? year, about a year now. Um, <clears throat> much of what he said here is still quite quite valid. Um, although, as you all know, we're in a very fluid industry, and 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 things change. Um, so there's three concurrent stories from my perspective that went on um, in in the book. Um, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong. Sure. Um, the evolution and development of the MP3. The chairman, current chairman of Sony Music, who at the time was not at Sony when much of this took place, uh, Doug Morris. And then the situation of what went on in a... Originally it was a, run by Polygram and later was sold to Universal, a pressing plant in the Carolinas, and how all this came together. You're a guy living in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. from the Midwest. How the heck do you track down some guy that no one else has in the Carolinas who's responsible for causing, I don't know how much money and damages to the industry? Extraordinary economic damage. Well, I, I guess you guys have heard from music executives, and, and you're all musicians, and you've heard from management types. Um, but you probably haven't heard from a pirate, and that's what I was. Uh, when, I, when I showed up to college in 1997, I had one of these beige box computers. I, most of you were born around 96 or 97. So computing technology at that time, when you were born, weighed about 20 pounds, and it had two gigabytes of hard drive space. Uh, so your cell phone today weighs about you know, four ounces and has 64 gigabytes of hard drive space. Um, but I showed up to college, and before this, I'd been buying compact disks at the mall uh, when I wasn't shoplifting them. And uh, <laughs> which is old school. 
Um, so I, sh I show up, and uh, you know, you have these new technologies that had been invented by these uh, German sound engineers that could take the information on a compact disc and compress it by 91, 92%. Simultaneously, really for the first time, you had broadband internet. Uh, you guys won't remember what it was like to use a dial-up uh, phone modem to call into the internet, but that's how it used to be. It was extremely slow. You know, it'd take you three minutes to load a, a single image. Instagram would take about four hours to, to scroll down your feed um, for like <coughs> 10 photos. Uh, but now there was broadband, which was much faster. And so for the first time, it was like turning on the internet. And, and it was combined with these microscopically sized files. So soon enough, all of the kids who were, would be about your age started to build this secret shadow infrastructure for music distribution that the music industry didn't want to touch. Um, by the time I sort of ended my first year at college, that two gigabyte hard drive was completely full of pirated music. And as I got more into it, I ended up getting into the torrent scene and the deeper underground of it. And by 07 or 08, I had 15,000 albums. Now, did you listen to that? I mean, no, no. I mean, there's no. I mean, it'd take a year and a half to listen to it all. So this was just consumption. For it was the hoarding. Sake of... Yeah, it was the collector's impulse where you just go out and get a bunch of crap you don't need because it's free. But if you had to buy this, you would never. Have if I caught, I mean, I never wouldn't have had the money. It would have cost me well two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy that many albums at CD retail prices. Um, so that's the sort of notional economic value of what I had. Uh, on the flip side, it is just a hard drive full of bits. So what's it really worth? You know, and that that dichotomy was playing out in front of me. I'd grown up thinking that music was a physical object that you went to the store to get. You know, it was, a, it was inventory, and that's how the music industry thought about it. But to the engineers who invented the MP3, all those racks of CDs at the mall, they were an inventory. They were just an array of inefficiently stored data. And what they wanted to do was take all the bits on the plastic where they'd be scuffed and destroyed and stolen and put it in a centralized computer server and then served, you know, as needed out. And that's eventually what we got to. But the recalcitrance of the music industry to get involved in such a scheme because they were making so much money off the compact disc delayed that process for 10 or 15 years. And so in the meantime, you had these punk kids in their, in their mom's basements and in college dormitories doing it for them. Uh, and, and that's how all this stuff was available. And you ask the question, well, how did I get to the central character of the book? You know, in, in 08 or 09, I finally was just looking at this enormous trove. Spotify hadn't really kicked in yet, so we were still just using iTunes to, to get our albums. Um, I was like, Jesus, how did it all really get here anyway? And I started to investigate it, and it turned out that there was a hardcore underground of probably about a 1,000 pirates that were responsible for seeding almost all of the file sharing networks like LimeWire and Torrent Sites and Napster with almost all of the material that was available on there. Now, I'd always assumed it was just crowdsourced. Like they were just, you know, okay, I log into LimeWire, I put up a file, and so I take down a file or whatever. That wasn't true. Way, way, way in the internet underground, there were like a thousand guys who had dedicated their lives to leaking stuff to the internet. And they had begun to infiltrate the supply chain of the entertainment industry. And the best mole that they ever got was a guy named Del Glover, who was a factory worker at a compact disc factory in North Carolina. And his job was to take the compact disc, finished off the pressing machines behind him, and feed it into a shrink wrapper. That's all he did. He got paid $10 an hour to do this. It was a temporary factory job that he played in a perm. But what that meant was that he had the hottest music of the year 
weeks and sometimes months ahead of its official release date, literally at his fingertips. So if you could find a way to get the CDs out of the tray and smuggle them out plant security and post them to the internet, then they would be copied millions of times, right? And so he would become, instead of the Sam Goody or all the record stores or iTunes, he would become the primary point of distribution for all music, and it only took one CD to do this. So the plant knew this, right? And they were concerned about this. They'd set up the security regime where as you were leaving the plant, you would swipe your employee turnstile through the, or your employee badge through the turnstile, and if you got a red light, they'd take you over to the side, they'd make you stand like this. And they had a, an aluminum detecting wand that they would wand over your body searching for that like thin aluminum sliver in, in the disc. And if they found it on your body, like you were like secreting in your clothes or whatever, uh, they would fire you immediately and, and, and charge you with embezzlement and, and you know, get the police involved. But Glover had watched thousands of people exit the plant over the years. And one thing he always noticed, this was like small town North Carolina, right, was that everybody was wearing these big like belt buckles, like stars and bars belt buckles, right? And these would always set off the wand as they were wanding the people, but the security guards would never make you take it off. It was just a rent-a-cop. They didn't really care. So what you would do when you were on the factory floor is you'd take the discs that were slated to be destroyed in a plastics grinder because they would have overstock on the run. You just needed one, remember. You'd take one disc, you'd take your rubber glove, and you'd tape it off like this and tie it off. And then you'd cinch it behind your belt buckle. And then when you got hit with the wand and they hit the belt buckle, you'd be like, well, it didn't do, do anything. Like, it's just a belt buckle. And they're like, okay, go through. So in this way, Glover and his smuggling confederates got uh, 2,000 albums out of the plant over the course of about seven years, including all of the major hits of the era. Uh, meanwhile, at the top, in the boardroom, guys like Doug Morris were consolidating the, the industry into one big thing. And the faster they could do that, the more hits came through the factory floor. So Glover leaked uh, 50 Cent's Get Rich, Get Rich or Die Trying. He leaked the Eminem show. He leaked Taylor Swift's first album. He leaked Justin Bieber's album. He leaked U2's How to Demonstrate an Atomic Bomb. Uh, he leaked Nelly, who you mentioned before. So a different Nelly album, I think. Uh, he, leaked, um, he leaked Rick Ross. And when they caught him, finally, he had leaked all three of Kanye West's first albums including Graduation, when they caught it, it was actually in the CD player of his car. He had just leaked it. And you remember, you guys remember, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, remember like Kanye West had like a sales competition with 50 Cent, and it made like the cover of Rolling Stone over who would sell more albums? Glover leaked both of those albums. He leaked them both. So in fact, he won the sales competition, right? <laughs> um, so, so he would get these albums out, uh, and then you know, they'd make their way to this, this releasing group, these underground releasing groups, and within 24 hours... You know, because they were making perfect digital copies, there'd be millions of copies of this stuff all over the globe. So the vast majority of what you could find on Napster and LimeWire, and if any of you guys still have any of this stuff lying around in your iPods, all of that music can be traced back to just one person. Um, so how, but how, how did you get to meet him? Mean, so how did I get to meet him? Well, let me, let me get to first, why did he do it? Okay. Why do you do it, right? Because a lot of these guys were just anarchists. They were just, I think they were really just thrill-seeking anarchists who loved the rush of leaking music from artists. Uh, and this is still a huge problem that plagues the industry. Uh, how many of you are, are you, you're all musicians, right? Here's a show of hands. Like, how many of you think you'll be musicians or, like, how many of you think you'll be producers in 10 years? A few producers. How many of you think you'll be, like, in management? A lot of management. Okay, good. 
And how many of you think you'll be like a label executive, more business side of it? Okay. And how many of you are going to be rock stars or rap stars? You got one rap star back there. Good. <laughs> okay, so it's a good mix. It's a good mix. Um, you know, the mastering process now, they've got it so tightly controlled because they're so concerned about leaks. And it still happens all the time. Uh, and they botched their own release cycle. I, Rihanna leaked her own album, I think, unintentionally via title. I don't think they were intending to do that. Um, but all you need is something to appear unsecured on the Internet for, you know, 20 seconds, and it's gone. So how did I find this guy? So what Glover would do is he would take his compact discs, and he would go into the secret un- Internet underground, and he would, he would trade them uh, with other people who were leaking other material. And he particularly was interested in the DVD releasing scenes. Now, what these guys would do is they would also have a plant inside a DVD factory somewhere leaking something else. Or they would go after, they would bribe like to get inside of Walmart early and get inside of Walmart's inventory and leak stuff out while it was still in the store but before it was on the shelves. Or they would uh, get a lot of Oscar DVD screeners that they would send to the Academy and they'd leak those really early. And so Glover had pre-release access to all of that stuff way before any of the other bootleggers and way before the rest of the internet. Okay? And so he, he would get these movies and he would take them home to a DVD duplicating tower in his house and he had probably three of these. So he could burn 20 movies at once. He'd burn thousands and thousands of first-run unreleased movies and then sell them out of the trunk of his car uh, for about $5 a pop. And demand was intense because nowhere, even on the rest of the internet, could you get this stuff? So people would drive from 50 miles away and park their car in his lawn to buy these, these, leaked, these leaked movies from him. And eventually, he, his operation got so big that he had to deputize a workforce, and it grew elaborate. Uh, he, would go to the, he would go to the barber shops all around North Carolina, and he would drop off uh, a spindle of discs, like 500 discs, uh, with, the, with the barber, uh, and then you know, come back a week later and, and collect on consignment like $1,000 in cash from these guys. Uh, so he made several hundred thousand dollars this way. And the barbers made more money selling his bootleg movies than they did cutting hair. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he really liked, uh, he wanted to pimp out his ride, so he, he invested a lot of the money he was making as a bootlegger, like, back into his car. <laughs> so he ended up putting these, um, do you guys remember spinners? Do you guys know what spinners, you remember spinners? So he, he, he decided that he didn't want spinners, he wanted a different kind of rim called a floater which is on an independent bearing. Uh, and so like when you drive the car, the rim appears to stay still. So my book is about the guy who destroyed the music industry so he could put rims on his car. <laughs> um, the FBI caught him in 2007 after a, a long manhunt. Uh, they knew there was somebody out there, and they had been working with the Recording Industry Association of America to, to find him. Uh, it took him forever. Uh, he was really good at what he did. The scene he was part of was really good with encryption, and they were really deeply underground. Whenever the FBI prosecutes someone, those prosecutions, all of the paperwork that's generated at trial, is put in a massive legal electronic database called PACER. And when I was researching this story, this is how I found him, actually, <coughs> via, his, uh, via his legal uh, prosecution, via his, his court case. You know, I was looking in, I, I had discovered the existence of this underground community of, of media leakers, and I, a lot of them had gone to jail. And so I was looking through hundreds of FBI cases that had prosecuted different members of this scene. 
And when I got to Glover's and I read the statement of facts in the case, I was like, holy, everything on the internet goes back to like this one guy, <laughs> it's one factory worker in North Carolina. Uh, this guy did more damage to the record industry than all of the other 99 leakers combined. So I didn't know him, I didn't know anything about him, but I knew where he lived and his general sort of demographic profile information. I was like, okay, this is like, he's black, he's like 38, he lives in North Carolina, and his name is Del Glover. There, there can't be that many people who fit that description. So I started trolling on Facebook looking for this guy. And I finally found a guy that matched the description. I wrote him a, 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 a Facebook message saying, hi, I'm a journalist in New York. Uh, I'd love to make your acquaintance and talk to you if, you if you want to share your story with me. I'm not even sure I have the right guy, but I figure, what the hell, there's no harm done. And the next day, he called me on, the cell phone, on my cell phone. Uh, we talked for about eight hours. I went to visit him six different times. And eventually, I developed the raw material for, for this book from that. I was a graduate student when I did that. I, mean, I, was, I was a student in journalism school when I started working on this. So that's how I found him. And he was <clears throat> obviously was open and receptive talking to you? He just got out of prison. Um, he just got out of, uh, so he only served three months in prison because he, he was agreed to testify against his co-conspirators in the, in the uh, crime, including his controller, who was the spy master of, of music leaking, this kid whose screen handle was Kali. And that's who the FBI's real target was. This guy was controlling moles all over the world. He had guys in Germany. He had guys in Italy working for radio stations, working for promo companies. Some of them probably were students like you because they used to send advanced promo copies to the student radio stations as well. And so this guy was really like the, the, the leak master. He was the spy master of the whole thing. And the guys would go and they'd get their leaked CDs and then they'd burn them to MP3 on their home computers and then they'd email them to him as the distribution note. He was the one who did the distributing. So if you could get a hold of this guy's laptop in California, this one 26-year-old insurance agent had an army of 20 leakers that he was controlling. And on his laptop was the most up-to-date music library in the entire world. He could have DJed a party and had music that wasn't going to come out for months, right? Just this one kid. Isn't that how someone got caught? The, uh, a few people got caught in this way, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he never got caught. He was very canny. Uh, and they finally prosecuted him, but he was found innocent. Uh, you know, they couldn't, they never got him. See, so he got off scot-free. His name was uh, Adil Kasim, And he was, he was, just, he gutted the music industry. He destroyed it. Um, so you think either of these guys had any thought of what they were costing, you know, the economy, the musicians, the record companies? No, I don't think they ever thought twice about it. They were punk kids. A lot of kids with like, you know, intelligence, but very little motivation, not really doing a lot in their lives. Um, you know, but they loved music. They loved music and they loved the artists. And I don't think they were deliberately trying to hurt them. I just think that this was the hobby, the hobby that they got caught into. And I think a lot of them felt they were really sticking it to the man. And I remember one of them saying, I was like, well, he'd leaked Rihanna's first album. I was like, didn't you feel bad for Rihanna? He's like, no, she's getting paid. You know, that was their mentality. Uh, it, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I was, knowing that you were here, I just did a little work. And I guess in... Um, Yale University, they had an article in one of their publications called Ethical Considerations in Music Piracy, mm-hmm. which is an interesting title. And um, <clears throat> one of the arguments posed was that piracy is not theft because theft entails removing the original item, whereas piracy leaves the original intact and just copies it. Legally, it's not theft. These guys are not charged with larceny. They're charged with a crime called conspiracy to commit copyright infringement. And what that really means is bootlegging. 
depending on the industry, it can be a huge problem. For music, interestingly, actually, and this is, this is I think, the big point, piracy is actually declining pretty rapidly. The problem there, though, is, and this is why I, I don't think, even though piracy is declining rapidly, we haven't seen a growth in profitability of the music industry. During the 90s, what they were doing, and this was the model that Doug Morris really loved and all of the record industry execs from that era really wanted to keep pushing. You'd have a hit song, the song uh, No Diggity. Do you guys know this song? It's a massive hit when I was about 15, and it was everywhere. And Blackstreet really just had that one song. And it was really just a Dr. Dre song that you know, Blackstreet sort of showed up and, and sang over, but it could have been anybody. But Blackstreet went double platinum, I think, off, just off one song. Just off one song, they, they think about what that means. They made about $30 million in gross revenue from one hit song. Okay? Um, because to get that song, you had to go out and buy an album. Okay? You had to buy, pay $14 or $15 to get a compact disc and take it home with you. Now, the contemporary version of whatever, whoever Blackstreet is, let's who's the biggest one-hit wonder lately, Megan Trainer, okay, big, big one-hit wonder, uh, probably. Um, nobody's buying her album, right? They're just buying that one song. So rather than making $30 million off of it, she probably only gets you know, $1 or $2 million gross revenue. And that's at the top line. That's before her label, her manager, her agent, and her lawyer, and the rights holders, and the performers take a cut, right? So in the end, she's making very little off selling music. Uh, and I don't think we'll ever go back to that era where you can just have one hit song and sell 2 million albums on that basis. I just don't see it ever coming back. So really what was happening is for a long time, the, the music industry was over-earning. The, the contemporary model is much more efficient for customers, right? We only pay for exactly what we listen to now. In the old days, I had all these albums, and I didn't like a lot of them. I'd go to the store and buy four or five albums, and two of them would suck, and I'd listen to them once, you know? And that, that deadweight loss of the 15 bucks I just spent was just gone. It was out the window. The music industry got to pocket it. But under almost no conceivable circumstances will we ever go back to that. The piracy, is, it's debated that maybe that does increase demand for the particular song. It's that. And then there's the cost of what it's cost the economy. Because it's not just the musician who's losing out or just the record company. It's the, re- it's the non-existent retail base. Well, now, even without piracy, retail is just getting smashed by... Yep online retailing anyway, and that's legally happening, right? So all of the big box, not just the record stores, but all of the big box stores are starting to shut down. So you can see that that trend is going to happen with or without piracy, I would say. And it's hard, it's hard to find a retail store that carries music. It's hard to find a retail store that carries I mean, how many of you guys have purchased a compact disc in the past year? Well, a lot. So a lot of you still listen to compact discs. How many of you have bought a vinyl record? More, more. Interesting. When I was, uh, I mean, vinyl records, I think had cratered around 2000 i think they were selling about one a year at right. that time yeah and, and now they're really back huh i was i was giving a talk to a bunch of old old fogies in in, in uh princeton uh last week and there was a universal consensus that music today is not as good Ugh. as it was in the 70s and i'm wondering what what do you think and then what do you guys think about that do you think it's as good now as it, as it was? Or did you go back and listen? Do you think the old stuff is better? It's just different. How? It's just different. I said, like, I mean, you don't hear just raw instruments anymore. Uh-huh. It's not just, like, yeah. yeah. It's not drum set, guitar, bass, and a singer. It's, it's rock and roll creative. Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. What, what happened, you know, and this is the point that, that you're getting at, is 
you know, live instrumentation is dying, both across the entire music uh, industry spectrum and being replaced by Ableton Live. And, uh, you know, um, the guy who I was meeting with, Seabrook, he, you guys know who Max Martin is? Yeah. John Seabrook was here. Oh, Seabrook was here. He spoke. Oh, I spoke he with Seabrook in Princeton. Okay, great. So Seabrook and Max Martin, and they do all that comping stuff. So essentially, I mean, Max Martin's actually a very talented musician. He can play several instruments, and he's got a beautiful singing voice. Not a lot of people know this about him. But his real, real musical talent is just moving things ever so slightly around in Ableton Live. I mean, that's what, that's what makes the big, <laughs> the big, big money, uh, if you can believe it. So all this piracy stuff really was enabled by technology. Yeah. So can we go back and talk about um, <clears throat> the... Uh, Evolution of the MP3. Sure. So what happened was, very early on, the, the compact disc was, was introduced. People often criticize the music industry for failing to make the leap to digital. But this is not quite correct because they were the first industry to go completely digital. They did it very, very early in 1982. Uh, you know, they switched from a mode of you know, vinyl analog platters <laughs> to these compact discs, which essentially were just streams of ones and zeros. Uh, so you guys probably are... are too young to remember this, but almost the first digital device that anybody owned in their home was a compact disc player. I mean, you know, probably more or less. Before they owned a personal computer or anything else, they bought a compact disc player. Um, but these German guys were looking at this thing, and as I said before, they, they looked at it and they thought it was inefficient. And instead, what they wanted to do, and this is 1982 they had this idea, let's take the bits off the compact disc and put them in a computer. And then what we'll have people do is we'll have them call, pick up their telephones, the old telephone, and, and they'll have a catalog, almost like a karaoke catalog of the, song, of the song they want to hear. And what they'll do is they'll punch the number off the catalog into their touchtone phone, and then they'll hook the phone up to like a, a special receiver we've designed that will, that will pipe the music out of the phone into their stereo system. And this is the new model that we'll use to distribute music and we'll get rid of the manifold inefficiencies of this whole physical distribution chain. 1982, they had this idea. And the guy actually filed for a patent on it. But his patent was rejected. And the reason is that a compact disc, as those of you who are doing the engineering side of it know, takes about 1.4 million bits to encode a second of stereo sound, and the telephone could only do it at about 128,000 kilobits per second. Or, sorry, 128 kilobits per second. <laughs> So there just were way too many bits, and they had to figure out a way to shrink this stuff by 90%. So he deputized a genius to do it. This guy, Carl Heinz Brandenburg, who had multiple uh, talents, disciplines in mathematics, engineering. Uh, he's a real math genius. Um, he's about six foot five, and he, he's got basically Asperger's. And, he sort of, and so for five years, he worked on this problem, and eventually recognize that the ear has certain failings. Uh, part, of a diag uh, part of a discipline of academics called psychoacoustic analysis. Basically, if I have a tone at, let's say, 440 hertz and a second tone at 450 hertz, uh, they, they will start to cancel each other out. The ear can't actually perceive the difference between those things very well. So the amount of bits that I'm, you know, naively I would think I would need the same amount of bits for both those tones. But what Brandenburg figured out is that I can delete most of those bits because of the interference pattern between two tones. And there were other things they did. Um, if, I'm, if I'm listening to a song and there's a drum beat, 
the first few milliseconds after the drum beat, my ear is still adjusting to the drum beat. So every time on a 4-4 beat, as I'm encoding the music, the period right after the drum beat, I don't actually have to use very much information to do that. And we can get rid of some bits there. Using these techniques and a variety of others, he was actually able to compress this down to about 128,000. And then what happened was one of the most extraordinary stories in the history of sort of the production side of, of music was that he was utterly unable to sell this thing to anybody. He took it to uh, BMG, which BMG is still around, or the Bertelsmann Music Group. I think they're part of... Uh, well, no, they're, the big, they're a big company in Germany. They're a big company in Germany. Here they're part of Sony, I think. Anyway, one of the big ones. He took it, he took it to Sony. He took it to a bunch of people, and they all rejected it. Uh, and that was because... Uh, one thing was that the engineers all hated it. You know, They had spent their lives constructing these perfect quality, high-fidelity audio masters. And then this lanky German dirt, like, dork shows up and says, I'm going to delete 90% of your life's work. And they just didn't want to hear it. Right? They, weren't, they weren't about it. Uh, and it's true there was some... I, I, how many people here think they can hear a quality difference between like, a wave master and an MP3? Do you guys think you can hear it or not? Uh, the, engineers you, the engineers definitely think they can. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Uh, the average person, when they do listening studies, can't hear it. But if you get a, a, a seasoned studio engineer, they can always pick it up. Um, so there is a difference. But unless you have a Beats headphone. Unless you have Beats headphones, right. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, that's a different story. Right. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, so he shrinks this stuff. He, he's trying to sell it to the music industry, and they won't take it. And meanwhile, he's got a competing technology by a rival group called the MP2, which some of you may or may not remember. Uh, and that ends up being the industry standard. Uh, there was a very famous uh, war in the 80s over videotapes, the VHS versus Betamax battle. And the MP3 was the Betamax of audio compression. So in 1995, it really, really in desperation, he posts it online for free, for public download, via a program called, via like an idea called Shareware, thinking basically that he's toast, that he's, that he's lost this battle. And soon enough these basement pirates find it and they realize the potential of the thing, that they can get a compact disc and shrink it by 90% with only minimal losses in audio quality. So they, they start out doing this by the first, the first single that ever got ripped to MP3 illegally was a Metallica song called, uh, called uh, Until It Sleeps. But the one that was really a big hit, I don't know if you guys will remember the song, was by Easy e the song Real Mother... G's. Does anyone remember this song? It was a big hit in like 1994. What they did was they took Real Mother G's and they compressed it to MP3 and then they, they, they copied it to four three and a half inch floppy disks because this was really before broadband. They didn't have broadband yet. Then they took those disks and wrapped them up with tape and sent them to each other in envelopes in the mail. That was the earliest form of, of real digital music piracy. Are you, are you saying that the first use of MP3s was by pirates? They had sold it in limited instances to other technology firms. And, and the thing is, okay, so they actually, the MP3 inventors ended up making a ton of money off this thing. Because even to this day, when you, when you go and look at the license agreements on iTunes and on your iPod and everything, and even on Spotify, you go down to the licensing agreements, Fraunhofer's in there, the guys who invented this. They're still getting paid for this. So anything that compresses audio has to license this patent from them. But the irony there is that intellectual license, property licensing fortune that they made was only possible through the greatest wave of copyright infringement 
that the world had ever seen, right? So their gain came at a massive loss uh, to artists and, and labels. Um, so the MP3 had seen limited uses before, but without piracy, it never would have been successful. And piracy would not have been successful without MP3? Probably not. No, probably not. Not to the extent. It's hard to imagine if the industry in 95, because the funny thing was the, the last, there were guys who hated the compact disc. The first time they, they, they debuted the compact disc in the music industry, the guys booed it. You know, they were all vinyl guys and they were resistant to change. Uh, and then they introduced something in the late 70s and early 80s called the dual head cassette, cassette tape deck, which you could take your one cassette and then you could copy it to another cassette. And this actually led to a, an explosion of home, what was called home taping. Home taping is killing music. Home taping is killing music, which had a skull and crossbones uh, logo of a cassette tape deck, and then a, a crossbones under a skull and crossbones under it. So it was a cassette tape with a with a crossbones that was later appropriated by the Pirate Bay as their logo. Um, so law of unintended consequences there. Um, and that when that had happened, and they were, they'd lost about. On, a, on an inflation-adjusted basis, basically like 50% of their sales from the sort of peaks, the very high peaks of 75 and 76, down to the real doldrums of 1982. Two things happened in 1982. One, they got away from album-oriented rock, and they started to really embrace single-oriented pop. Um, and they really lo- and then and the Thriller came out that same year. Uh, and then two, the compact disc premiered, and they realized how profitable it was, and they realized that they could, they could use it to save their assets. Um, I don't know why it took them so long to come to that realization again with streaming, but now I think anybody you talk to in the music industry is thinking, they're thinking about streaming and they're thinking 10 or 20 years ahead. Uh, My my impression from talking to all these guys is they learned their lesson the hard way and they will never make this mistake again. They'll make some other mistakes, but they won't ever make this sort of bury your head in the sand and ignore the new technology mistake again. And and it, a lot of industries won't make that mistake again. Journalists have the same problem. I think when you talked about the compression, I think that's still something that I know the broadcast engineers still dibble around with right now because they're always trying to find how they can get more information in in a certain amount of bandwidth and what frequencies they can take out that is not discernible to the average human ear. You asked about early uses of the MP3. One of the first was digital audio broadcasting for multicast. So if you have ever have an HD radio signal, if you've ever used this, you'll know that there's like 93.1 and then there's 93.1-2 and-3. So that's, those-2 and-3 channels were some of the first. That was like 94 and 95. The other guys who used it very early was the National Hockey League. Uh, they were the first... To ever the first North American customer of the MP3 in '95, they used it to broadcast interviews from the stadiums back to the radio station, and they invented something called a Zephyr box, oh, yeah. which which used MP3. Do you remember this? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That was one of the first uses of MP3 encoding. <laughs> Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Zephyr. So while all this is going on, there's technology being developed. There's the pirates are like scrambling around. What's going on with the record labels? What, I mean, they're just sitting by and going, what are we going to do? I mean, obviously, there were, I mean, the story goes that, you know, well, well Doug Morris was, he was the, he was the kingpin of, of the industry at that point. He was the executive. 
here's a man who started with a small independent label, worked his way up managing Atlantic Records, mm-hmm. oversaw the Warner thing, got booted out of there, right. got hired by Edgar Brofman to start another label uh, with Seagram's money, which evolved and morphed into what's known as Universal, which was formerly MCA, um, which laughably at the time was called MCA, was called Music Cemetery of America. That's how bad things were. And he got there, changed it from MCA to Universal. And then when they told him he was too old, he had to retire, he moved over to Sony. So here's a man who arguably has run the three majors that are still standing today. He's run all three majors. Yeah. He's now 70. He was born in 1938, so he'll turn 78 this year. Uh, his most reasonable, not- notable uh, recent hits were he put out that Daft Punk album. He did the Beyonce surprise album. He signed Miley Cyrus, uh, and he did Adele last year. So... So he's, he's and, still, and, he's still and, killing and, and you, and you mentioned, <laughs> And you mentioned Megan Trainer. And Megan Trainer. L.A. Reid works for him. L.A. Reid Reed still works for him. And they've, they've been in, I think, business for 30 years. They did business like over at Universal, and now when he brought him over to Sony. Morris's best friend is Jimmy Iovine. I, I assume you guys know who that is, the Beats impresario. Uh, they're actually on opposite sides of the, of, the, um, of the fence now, but they still talk, like, constantly. I mean, like, multiple times a day. When I interviewed Morris, Jimmy Iovine called him four times in one hour. Uh, so they're just they're constantly on the phone with each other, and they're just like two old Brooklyn sharpies, right? They're just like, you know, Ivine was the son of a longshoreman, and, and right, uh, yeah. yeah but, but but Doug, if I'm not mistaken, well, Doug was a songwriter. Doug, Doug, so Doug is a high schooler. Saw Elvis Presley on TV. That's how old he is. He saw that happen live in real time, and decided he wanted to be a musician. Uh, he played the piano. Um, you've heard his music. I've never heard it. It's not good. Well, you know, it was anyway, back in the fifties. Back in the fifties, he 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 described it to me as uh, more closer to Bobby Darren than Bob Dylan. So, if you know who Bobby Darren is, he wrote a song called "Splish Splash." I was taking a bath. Uh, <laughs> so not well, not great, not but, great. But, but you remember Doug Doug co-wrote "Smoking in the Boys' Room." He got a couple hits, and uh, there was a big hit. Way before anybody in this room was born, called "Are You a Boy? Are You a Girl?" Are you a boy? Or are you a girl? And he did another one for the Chiffons called um, "Sweet Talking." Sweet Talking Guy. Yeah. So he had a few hits as a songwriter, but he moved. He moved into management pretty quickly. I think he saw, you know, the songwriter's existence is pretty tenuous. It's very difficult. If any of you are trying to be songwriters, it's very difficult right now. Is anyone here trying to be an A and R? I intern A and R right now. You intern it. Yeah, it's all. Is it all data analytics now? No, I mean there's a separate like there's separate executives for that. Okay. So, like, there's a there's an analytics uh, like representative, but then like you have the um, like kind of like the guy who's. I mean that's what I do too. Like you know just sit on blogs and um, actually like look all over the internet and listen to just all these different sites and. How, how many how many SoundCloud tracks do you listen to? Like. I can't even count. Yeah, a thousand. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And then there's the other side of, <clears throat> like, the, uh, the side that works with the current artists. Like, that's, like, everybody, like, that's who, you know, formats the album and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. so what happens if you find something that you think is interesting or worthy, you bring it to the attention of one of your... Um, well, I have to put out uh, two charts a week. So... Did you say I charts? Mean, I, yeah, I put, like, two... Uh, sorry, like, report, well, reports and charts. So, like, I'll find... If I find something that's worth listening to, I'll put it out in, like, a daily report. And then um, if it's, like, something that they really should, you know, put some put some time into, I'll put it in a, it's a weekly report. So it's kind of more of a bigger picture. What, so what happens to those reports? They just, the staff reviews them. 
So has anything that you've found, has anybody ever responded yeah, come back to? On, you got, you got any feedback? Yeah. <laughs> You got any feedback? No, I mean, yeah, I get some decent feedback. Um, a lot of the times they've already they've already touched on things that I found. They're all like, oh, we know about that. All, yeah, um, and then I do. Uh, I had I've had two artist pitches so far. So like somebody I really feel passionate about, and then I just kind of pitch it to the uh, pitch to the staff. Oh. But nothing really came with my first one. So you know how Scooter Braun found a Justin Bieber yeah. off YouTube? Yeah. Accidentally clicked the link. Right. Did you know that? That's how Justin Bieber became famous. A music manager accidentally clicked a link on YouTube. He's doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> he's do, he's doing but, it, but in the old days, right? He's magic Kanye yeah. West now. Yeah, yeah. There was no internet. Uh, in the old days, you had to go scout these smoky-ass bars and juke joints. You read about the history of the industry. You know, Amit Erdogan wandering into the, the, the black part of town when this was a time when people wouldn't cross over and finding Ray Charles. At, uh, that's how you used to do it before there was the internet. And Morris sort of came from that era, right? Uh, but he very early on decided that that was not how he was going to play it. So he did some scouting of live acts. He did some scouting of new musicians. He did some auditions. But what he really did was he hung out in the back office. And he kept very careful records of where the LPs were being shipped across the country. And if he saw something that seemed to be moving like a blip or, or, turning, or turning a little heavier. Remember, there's no internet now. He's looking at like, you know, physical retail spreadsheets. Uh, he would say, hey, maybe we've got something here. His first gold record was a, a totally forgettable song by a band called The Music Explosion. And what he realized was that they were selling a bunch of, um, a bunch of uh, records in, in a, a, a one, one market in Cumberland, Maryland. So he calls the guy at the record store and he says, what's going on? He's like, well, we've got a local DJ who loves a song and he's playing in rotation and it's, it's moving records. So he goes back to his boss and he says, we've got to move this. We've got to take it out of local rotation and put it national. And this is his core philosophy because there's no such thing as a regional hit. Okay? There's only a global hit that we haven't marketed yet. If something can hit regionally, then we can sell it to everybody. That worked. The song went to number two and he went gold. 30 years later... One of his A&Rs comes to him and says, yeah, I was hanging out in a, uh, a record store in, in, in New Orleans, and they, they have these guy named Birdman and Slim, and they're out selling, uh, they're out selling Tupac Shakur you know, in, in, in New Orleans. I'm not sure how they're doing it. So he calls the guys over. Birdman comes in, and, and he, he can't understand him because his accent's so thick. Um, and so he's running Cash Money Records, and he's giving him this distribution deal for all these artists. Nobody else would listen to these guys, but, but Morris was like, yeah, you've got it. You've got Juvenile, Little Wayne, and Birdman. I see the vision of it, and most importantly, it's, you've proven you can sell records in New Orleans. And if you can sell records in New Orleans, I think you should, even though like, your New Orleans accent is so thick that I can barely comprehend what you're saying, I think you can sell records anywhere. And they did. It became the most successful independent label of all time. So this is his mentality, and he's, st- he's still doing this. And he, and he passes that tradition along to... The most successful record label right now is Republic, which is Monty right. Lippman. Right. And he taught Monty how to do that. And, and, he, and he trained Lucian Grange, uh, who's, yep. who's now in charge at Universal. Yep. Um, you know, the, the difference now is that he doesn't have to go hang out in the record store anymore. He doesn't have to go to a bar. He doesn't have to hang out in the back office. In an instant, he can pull... Spotify acts like a massive electronic uh, spying device, essentially, <laughs> you know, focuses on what everyone's listening to. And, you know, there's a variety of different uh, third-party data applications that will tell him exactly what's trending. 
So you said but everybody else too. Tell, tell everybody else too. So then it becomes a data analytics game where you're looking at, okay, this SoundCloud guy is, you know, I, and by the way, I haven't even listened to this person's music. It doesn't matter, but I can see the SoundCloud, uh, the SoundCloud song spiking. Uh, I honestly think it's possible that for a good data analytics guy, if he was deaf, he could do the job. I, I literally think that's now possible. So that's the contemporary state of the industry. Now, the, the, the flip side of that is, you know, and I'm, I'm writing about this now, what does that mean for consumers? Are we all just, you know, sort of pawns in this large-scale data analytics game? You know, are we individuals at all? Does our taste matter? Or, you know, does, does, if you're trying to be a music industry executive, does it even matter what you like? But it begs the question, artists may mean something to some of you here, maybe not, but when Warners was always known for artist development and they would take an artist, whether it was a Bonnie Raitt or a Fleetwood Mac, they would stay with them for five, six, seven albums before they would even possibly achieve any sort of gold status. Today, I don't, th- I don't think that opportunity was gonna, is going to exist for any band. If you don't make it on your first single... If you don't make it on your first few albums, I think you actually have to, you have, you have to rebrand. Single, forget album. Yeah, yeah. You're first not, get it. You're not you, going to get an album you have, until you have, you have a single. Cha- you have to change your... Katy Perry got two shots, uh, and that was huge. That was massive. Like, most people don't even get... Most people get one shot at most, you know? Yeah, if you slump out of the gate in today's market, you're essentially toast. Now, it's not true with the indie labels. You can carve out right. some kind of career, and if you're, there's people who do break a little bit later, uh, but, but for the most part, you're right. I'm, I'm trying to think of someone like Father John Misty, who got very big last year. That was his eighth or ninth album, but he, he changed his name and completely reinvented his musical sound to do it. Uh, I think Yo Gotti has been... Before, before the down in the DM, he's been hanging around as a rap musician for 14 years or something. And he's, had, he's been growing in stature very slowly, but it's not like some big label was encouraging him. He finally just, he just refused to stop grinding and finally had a hit, you know, like a big, a big radio hit. But they're still artists, and if they accept that they're now on their own label or an independent label, they can continue making a living because, as you and I discussed earlier before class is the way musicians make money today is radically different than it was back in the 70s. It's, you put out an album, it got some airplay, then you could go on the road and tour, and maybe you got a publishing deal, maybe you sell some merch, and maybe if you got lucky, somebody might want to use your song in some commercial vehicle. That's all upside down now. I mean, the record is a lost leader. You give it away almost because you know you're not going to see any money if you get an advance from the label. Right. You're making your money on the road. Musicians say make money on the road, touring, publishing, sync licenses, and merchandise. And then, and then you get paid to put a Ciroc vodka uh, bottle in your video. Although when MTV was around, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't get away with <laughs> you that. You couldn't get away with that. They'd, no, they'd, no. Make, they'd make you edit that out. No, I think, I think for, what, for, the, for the mid-tier musician, it's all about touring. And even for the big musician, it's well, got to be most Even before money. you want to get signed. Yeah, how are you going to generate? How are you going to generate income on the in, interest on the on the internet unless you're a touring entity? Mm-hmm. And then getting found now happens. It's it's you typically via a commercial. Or to, you know, you reach a much wider audience to be in a commercial or on a, you know, on a uh, on a TV show. So that stuff, artists will often give it away for very low low. I mean, they'll get paid, but getting featured in like a. a an Apple commercial can change your career. You know, and, and it, it was not that way in the old days. People would refuse to license their music to commercials. 
So how do executives like a Doug Morris, like a Lucy and Grace, how do they maintain the financial arrangements that they've grown up living when we've gone from an album economy to a song economy? So you're going from a $16, $17 item down to a dollar. Well, you've heard about the 360 deal. You guys familiar with this? And this is very controversial. Drake has one. So essentially, uh, Cash Money or his label gets a cut of every income source that he gets. Uh, I don't know if you guys... There was like a diss track that Pusha T put up with Drake. I don't know how up you are in the contemporary rap feuds. But this is one of the things he was referring to. What a bad contract actually Drake has. And this is one of the reasons. Drake can go on tour and, and Birdman's getting a cut of his tour revenue, right? It's not like the old days. Uh, you know, now that artist album sales don't mean that much, uh, there's been a lot of push towards this. Morris, interestingly, resisted this. He didn't like these deals, but it right. seems to be seems to be really the way the industry is going. And by the way, the cash money deal, which was Doug made it at, at Universal, was a distribution and pressing right. and distribution. So it, the Universal only gets X amount of... I think 15% of the total thing. Yeah, right. that's, that's why Birdman's one of the richest... I mean, he has like $200, $300 million. Also, he doesn't cash. pay... Yeah. Cash. He doesn't pay anybody either. Like, all of his, all of his rappers affect and sue him. You know, like he's he's Wayne, kind of like Wayne boy. right now. Yeah, yeah. Wayne is now suing him uh, over I think the years and maybe even decades of of lost revenue. Wayne got signed to Cash Money by calling Birdman's answering machine when he was 12 years old and rapping into it. And then he got put into the Hot Boys. And they got put in the Hot Boys. That's how he. That's how he got picked up. Uh, so but that's, but that's I awesome. suppose we'd not be fair if we didn't talk about Jay Z and Rock Nation. Right. Because that's a whole other way he's. He's done a whole other thing there. Right, right. Um, I, I know less about that, I guess. What, what is the... Uh... No, I mean, he's got a management company. He's got oh, yeah. a label. Um, he signs artists. And, um, well, he sees himself hearing, as hearing people. You know, the part of a diverse... He's got his agency. He's got sports agents, I think. Yeah, yes, he, he sees himself as part of a diversified business empire. Does that work? Is that working for him? I don't actually know. It, it, it seems to be. Okay. It seems to be. I mean, he has, he has Rihanna. He has Rihanna. He, he's... He's always got something going, something. and you don't hear complaints. He's got title. Thing. Well, title. You know, it's funny what Kanye just did. Right, was brilliant. I think, kind of releasing this album that it sounds like he's going to continuously update for the rest of eternity. Uh, what he's doing there is he's copying. So, video games had a massive problem with piracy for, and they still do. But it was really bad in the mid-2000s. And eventually they moved away from a model of selling you a physical product into a box. And instead, you buy the video game and then it's updated in patch release cycles over and over and over again. It's essentially into eternity. So if you don't have the authorized product, like it's not really worth very much. So you sort of have to buy the real thing. Uh, you know, it seems like that is what Kanye is attempting to do with The Life of Pablo. Musically, for me, I don't know if it's there. Maybe you guys like it more than me, but it's an interesting concept. I don't know. Maybe it'll work. All right, I want I want to go to some of the class questions. If oh, that's sure. Okay yeah, with let's, you. Let's hear. Um, so Olanda was asking a question. So do you think if Sean Fanning wouldn't have created Napster, streaming wouldn't be dominating the music industry today, or do you believe that streaming would have eventually come with or without Napster? It definitely was. On, it was definitely was coming. Uh, there was no escaping it. Uh, just in the same way that you know physical retail stores are being destroyed by Amazon anyway. Uh, you know, we're moving to a digital lifestyle, digital model. Um, you know, just as legally we have Instagram destroying the classic sort of photo blog or whatever. Uh, that's just that's just the contemporary trend. 
All right, let's go to um, Zach Smith. And Zach asked the question, concerning the fact that musicians barely make any money off of record sales in the first place, is it really detrimental to the success of a musician if people are listening to their music for free? No, I don't think so. It especially helps you, you know, think about The weekend, who started giving away his music for free on, on SoundCloud and various sites, then got a major label deal, took the exact same music and repackaged it as the trilogy. It was already available for free online. I think he sold about a million copies of it. So the fact that it was already completely available for free didn't stop him from physically selling more of it. Um, and so if you, especially if you're just starting out, uh, it's, it's a great model. Now certain people, heavyweights, Adele, can sell 7 million albums. Uh, if, you, if you look at who's selling albums, there's Adele and there's like everyone else combined. It, it, so, so one person is still selling albums. So how does she do it? Adele's fan base demo is, is different. Uh, it tends to be older, it tends to be more female, and they tend never to have been pirates in the first place and, and less, you know, less interested in technology. So they're still actually buying her album on compact disc. It's one of the reasons Taylor Swift could get away with it too, because she's, she's still selling so many physical compact discs at the mall, right, at Walmart. Um, but it, that's a legacy business that's, that's dying out. Uh, so I think for the most part, you're, you're going to have to give something away for free, especially at the beginning of your career. Joseph had a question. By capitalizing on ads with the YouTube videos, do you think Doug Morris was accepting the fact that the music had already escaped and became free? Yeah. He, that was forced. He was forced into that position. Uh, I think for the first time, he, that was his moment watching his 12-year-old son uh, listening to In the Club by 50 Cent, a song which he had commissioned, essentially, and, and paid for the video for. And then he sees it on YouTube or Yahoo Videos getting paid for free, and they're making money, and he isn't. That was his wake-up call. Because he realized that his, his son wasn't even pirating music anymore. He wasn't even downloading files, that that paradigm was leaving, the paradigm that I had been a part of and the paradigm that was coming in. So remember, I had said that, well, I had thought of music as... You know, they thought of music as an inventory thing, but I thought of it as a computing thing. I think for you guys, it won't even feel like a computer. It'll feel like a, an omnipresent utility that you summon out of the air with a, with a word command, right? It'll be like, it'll be like your sorcerers. You'll, you'll say something, and music will start to play. I mean, we're there right now. If you buy an Amazon Echo, you can, you can summon music into the air at, at a moment's notice. Uh, so it, the idea that it will even seem... Like a computer will stop. It'll just be magic, right? The ultimate mode of the internet will finally have happened when it's like electricity, when it's always on and you never, ever think about it. And the idea of being without it seems absurd, like turning off a circuit breaker in your house. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but I think the generation to come will, will feel this way. Question here from Ariana. <clears throat> Do you feel Apple's monopoly on music is still positive or are you glad there are competing streaming services? Oh, I think it's great there's competing services. You know, the big, the big problem on the horizon, I think, is, is that the streaming services themselves will begin to degrade in quality uh, in terms of what's available on them. Netflix, this is already happening. If you guys have longer-term Netflix subscribers, you'll know over the last five years that their catalog has gone from decent to pretty affordable. It's actually pretty hard to find something you want to watch on Netflix, and that didn't used to be the case. And this isn't just my impression. There's quantitative studies that show the size of their catalog shrinking every year as rights holders wake up to the power that they hold over them. So right now, Netflix costs about 10 bucks a month and has about 5% of, 
of what you'd ever want to watch. Spotify costs 10 bucks a month and has about 95% of what you'd ever want to hear. I see that number, the 95%, going down a lot over the next few years. Uh, I think a lot of artists are moving to exclusives. Uh, they're pulling their stuff off, off uh, Spotify. I see, I, I see bidding wars erupting, or maybe not bidding wars, but you know, wars for control of artist catalog erupting between the major streaming services. I suspect, though, right now, it's actually a pretty even playing field uh, between Spotify, Apple Music, and maybe titles like a distant third. Google may have something in there that might be YouTube is a very powerful player quietly uh, in a way that people don't fully understand. But that's actually how most people listen to music. I think in the future we'll probably, this market will end up being dominated by two or maybe even one player. Uh, I just see that that's the direction it, it may end up going in. The other model is that it'll be a free-for-all with dozens of players, sort of like Hulu, Netflix, HBO Go, Vimeo, dozens of services all sort of competing, maybe trying to carve out a niche, and each of them uh, has like an exclusive content library that's different than the next one. It could go there, too. I think that would be a negative outcome. I don't think I'd be very happy with my music listening experience if I had to remember... Oh, is Kanye West on Tidal? And where's Taylor again? Is she on Spotify or is she on Google Music? Where is she? Like, I have to go search through, like, four services. That doesn't sound like very much fun. Joelle, <laughs> so she wanted to know if you think vinyl is getting more popular, especially, why do you think vinyl is getting more popular, especially since digital music and streaming is so big? I have no idea. I find vinyl records to be the most affected, pretentious thing on the, on the planet. I, uh, they, they're heavy and they... They smell bad and they scratch. I it, the, whatever the appeal. You'll have to tell me because your generation buys a lot more records than mine ever did. I think you know. What, maybe what I think is happening is like there's a great video online where it shows like a desk, a, an office desk from the 1970s, and how every function of like the Rolodex and the freaking stapler and paper clips and shit are all slowly consolidated into a single device, right? So your entire life is then sort of intermediated by it. And that leaves your house bare, right? It leaves, it leaves desk space and bare and open. And so what remains is like, a, I described it in another piece as a phantom longing, phantom longing for physical objects, um, stuff that you can own and stuff that becomes a conversation piece to have with other people. Uh, it's also a nice way to show off your taste, which I'm sure is very sophisticated. And uh, if you have a bunch of expensive hi-fi equipment, you can sort of conspicuously display your high disposable income to members of the opposite side. Thank you, Stephen, for coming. And um, the book, it, there's a paperback coming out? Uh, yeah, paperback launches on June. Um, so if you, don't, if you don't feel like paying the full hardcover retail and you don't want to pirate it from the Russians, <laughs> you can buy the paperback. Well, let's thank Stephen for coming out. You've been listening to William Patterson University's Music Management Seminar Series on Music Biz 101 and more. If you missed any of this, just head over to our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or Stitcher Radio on your mobile device and download our podcast. I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye now. For Steve Leeds, our special guest, our esteemed and very valuable producer, Philip Gorachowski, and the good doctor, Esteban Marconi, I wish you an adios!